Good evening. You're up for it this evening. I see that. I'll not ask you to repeat that. I'm not into artificial. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm not, not too worried about the, the low-key response there. We're, we're going to do now what we always do, but I hope that neither you nor I uh, will enter into it lightly, because what we're going to do here is an incredible thing. We're going to spend a few moments paying attention to what God is saying to us through his word. So let's pray before we do that. Father God, we're here with that image of Isaiah's ringing in our minds before our eyes of how when he came face to face with your glory, he knew that he was undone. Lord, help us to have that same sense of expectancy as we're in your presence just now. Above all, give us a a wonderful sense of privilege to know that you're speaking, that your voice is clear for us to hear. Help us to pay attention, to hang on your every word, to leave here this evening knowing that we've heard you and ready to be changed as a result. Lord, this is our prayer. We pray that you would answer it for us. Amen. I wonder how much you pay attention to the songs that we sing in church. I'm not saying that to to knock you or tell you off because I, I actually find it hard to sing five or six songs and really pay attention to every bit as we go. It, it struck me, though, that sometimes we sing just audacious and incredible things, and we just sing them as if they were no big deal. I'm thinking of one song that we sing from time to time when we gather here, um, And it seems extremely harmless at first. Uh, It's a lovely song, and I love singing it. Be still for the presence of the Lord, the Holy One is here. Wow. We sing that, it trips off our tongues uh, as if it's the most normal thing in the world. It's a very casual uh, thing that we take this on our lips to say that God that God whom we were thinking about in Isaiah chapter 6, that he's here, that he's on the Newtonards Road with a bunch of people like us now. That's, that's incredible. Somehow or other, we have come to the point where we believe that God is here with us. Folks, the reason why we believe that and and feel content to to believe that is because that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, We saw it again recently in our Enjoying the Bible series during the summer months. Uh, I put it to you that the, the message of the Bible can be summed up like this. God comes to us and he says, I am with you. But then it comes back as an invitation, will you be with me? God comes and he tells us, I am with you. Will you be with me? So the whole whole work of God in this world is about him 
coming to be with us and inviting him, inviting us to be with him. Sometimes we've experienced that, each one of us. We have very different backgrounds here, but I'm hoping that you've experienced the presence of God among his people. You've come away from a conference or some other gathering or a church service, and you know that you've been in a place where God's been there. You've experienced God's presence, and it's the greatest thing in the world. This is what we're going to think about together this evening. We're going to remember again what a wonderful blessing it is to know God's presence. But as we look at chapters 7 and 8 of 1 Kings, we're going to ask the question, how do we host the presence of God? How do we keep ourselves open to this incredible blessing that God wants to give his people? If you don't already have your Bibles open, please have them open before you. We're in sort of page 342 to 344 or 5, that sort of area. Chapter 6 to 8 of 1 Kings. Last week, David helped us to to think about chapters 4 to 6. We learned in chapter 4 of Solomon, this, this third king of Israel. He uses his wisdom as a leader of God's people. In chapter 5, we learn about some preparations he made for building the temple, and then in chapter 6 of how he actually builds it. Don't worry too much about the detail here. A lot of this stuff's pretty obscure, uh, the detail of how he builds the temple. Um, it's, it's very remote for us uh, in terms of, of time. This happened a long time ago in a culture very different to ours. Uh, we're not going to worry too much about the architectural detail or to be wowed by the glitter and the gold. None of those things are going to help us, I don't think, to understand kings much better or to follow Jesus. And, and that's what I'm interested in this evening. Tonight, in chapters 7 and 8, we're going to look uh, at the, the completion of the biblical account of the, the building of Solomon's temple and, and of how God comes uh, and becomes present in that temple. But as we prepare to do that, look back with me to chapter 6, verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you're building, if you follow my decrees carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them. I'll fulfill through you the promise I gave to David, your father. I'll live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people. So in the middle of all this stuff about, about building the temple, we get a God's eye view of what's, what's really going on. God promises that he's going to live among his people. But his presence with them is always on the same basis. For all its splendor, the temple doesn't really change anything about how God relates to his people. And this is something that, that actually the people missed. There came a point from here on in in their history where they thought having a temple privileged them, where they thought God's presence was automatically among them because they had a building to accommodate God. Not so, is the the short uh, truth about the history of God's people. So we go quickly into chapter 7, and it it 
picks up where chapter 6 left off, a record of Solomon's building works. The first 12 verses tell us about Solomon's palace, and then the remainder of the chapter tells us about the furnishings. Um, You'll know this if you've recently bought a house or built a house. It's one thing to buy and build. It's another thing to furnish the thing. So that's why there's a a chapter given there, the the second part of chapter 7, to the the furnishings of the temple. Before I leave the biblical record of the building of the temple behind, I just want to, in summary, to say this is a, a wonderful structure that they build. This, this building is built to impress. Even the, if you get a chance to skim read it sometime, it didn't seem appropriate to me to read it here. There's gold all over the place. Even the hinges holding the doors on are made of gold. So on the one hand, the temple is this very impressive, eye-catching structure. But on the other hand, those verses from chapter 6 need to, to be in our mind's eye. We mustn't get too carried away with the, the beauty and the grandeur because we're reminded there that God's not half so impressed with structures as he is with obedience. The guarantee of God's presence isn't the fancy building. It's obedience and a willingness to do what God calls us to do. In the end, God only promises his presence to those people who behave as if they actually want him around. Those people who obey his commands. Folks, the application here is pretty obvious, I think, at this point. Often in our churches, we hear a congregation having a building project pushed at them as if the building project somehow would make it easier for the people to serve God and therefore to know his blessing among them. If only we had this kind of building or complex, we could do A, B, or C, and and we could really do great things for God, and and we'd really know God's blessing. I don't want to knock building projects because there are times when they're absolutely appropriate and necessary in church life. But it's this, it's this connection with if we get the buildings right, then God's blessing follows. Folks, our number one priority must always be to obey God here and now. We need to have our hearts set on Him, whatever our buildings are. Be they wonderful and modern and warm, or be they old and drafty and cold, it's obedience and not buildings that's the guarantee of God's presence in a community of his people. Chapter 8 tells of a wonderful moment in the history of Israel. Just to put this in context, I wonder if this is the highest point that Israel ever reached. The the reign of David and the reign of Solomon, they're the golden era in the history of God's people Israel. But this moment, this moment where the temple's completed, the Ark of the Covenant's brought in, and God's presence visibly comes among them, this is it. It doesn't get any greater 
for, for God's people Israel. We're told about it in the first 11 verses of chapter 8. All the elders are there, the heads of the tribes, all the men of Israel. There's a huge gathering, an unprecedented level of expectation. And we're told in verse 10 that when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests couldn't perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. This is it. This is the moment that God's people had waited for all their lives. And all the lives of all of their forefathers who had lived before them. It's the moment that we recognize when we experience it. And we know that it's like nothing else in life. It's what we've been created for. God's presence. God tangibly among his people. God with us. Folks, when we began this series a few weeks ago in 1 Kings, I asked you to to read this this part of God's Word on, on two levels. On the surface, it's going to read like a political history of Israel. A succession of kings, some better than others, their, their willingness or unwillingness to serve God. But there's another level because in the end, this isn't a story about a lot of different kings. It's a story only about one king, the true king of the universe, our sovereign God. So everything that we read in these chapters is an outworking of God's will among his people. So remember what's going on here. We asked the question, why did God bless David, Solomon's sinful father? Because he chose to. Why did Solomon and not one of his brothers become king? Because God willed it. Why did God grant wisdom to this already compromised Solomon early in his reign? Because in his grace he had a mind to do that. And why, we ask this evening, did God bless this sinful leader and this sinful people by sending his presence so dramatically among them? It's because God's good. Beyond our wildest imaginings. God didn't come to Solomon because he had built a wonderful gold-covered temple. God didn't come among these people because they were in any way particularly deserving. God only ever comes among his people because he's willing to work among us in spite of who we are. It's because in his mercy he looks past our sinfulness because his love compels him to forgive. Friends, God's only ever among us because of his sovereign grace. God's presence among us is all about what God does and nothing to do with what we do. It's a gift. It's always a gift. In his better moments, Solomon understands that. And we see it clearly in his prayer. I don't know if you noticed that in chapter 8. We, we actually read around it. But there's a, a huge prayer 
in the middle of it, a prayer where Solomon sort of dedicates the temple. He begins speaking to the people, verses 23 to 26. He remembers God's promises to his father David. In verses 23 to 27, Solomon says what we've been saying here this evening. He realizes that God can't be boxed in. Even if the box is glorious and made of gold, it can't hold God. Look at that. It says there, but will God really dwell on earth? Solomon realizes that God's beyond time and space restrictions. Instead, Solomon prays and he says, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Throughout his prayer, it's a very interesting thing to me that a prayer all about the presence of God among his people is all about forgiveness. Solomon makes this connection. He knows that we can't know the presence of God unless we're forgiven. So he begins in verse 31 with seven different prayers or petitions. He talks about seven different scenarios where God's people disobey him, where they fall out of his favor. And Solomon says to the Lord, when your people call out to you from this temple, hear from heaven and forgive. So the first petition is on behalf of a man who's wronged his neighbor. The second and the third and the fourth are of people who have sinned. They're suffering under their enemies or subject to drought or subject to famine. In the fifth petition, Solomon asks God to hear of the immigrant in their community who uses the temple. In the sixth, Solomon wants God to hear the people as they go to war. And in the seventh petition, beginning in verse 46, this this acts as like an umbrella for all of them. So we'll read it together. Look at verse 46. When they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, you become angry with them and you give them over to their enemy who takes them captive to his own land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, towards the city you have chosen and the temple you have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. For they're your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace. Solomon knows that sinful people need to be forgiven before they can enjoy the presence of God. I wonder, do we have anything like that same understanding? Do we remember that God is holy, or is that just not palatable anymore in the modern church? Do we remember that God hates sin 
our sin? Or has sin had its day? Folks, if we don't appreciate God's real holiness and our real sinfulness, then we'll have little appreciation for what Jesus did on the cross. It's in that place that he met the the requirements of the holy God, where he took our very real sin on himself and took the punishment we deserve. It's there that he made forgiveness a possibility and a reality. Folks, this is necessary for us to be here tonight and to talk about meeting in the presence of God. Let's never underestimate what it's cost God to be here among us. Let's never take for granted the privilege of God's presence. It's true what we sang a moment ago. It's only by grace that we enter. It's only by grace that we stand. It's only by grace that we can sit here this evening and that I can stand and that we can say that God is in this. It's only by grace. Folks, I said a little bit earlier that this moment recorded for us in chapter 8 of 1 Kings may well be the absolute high point in the history of God's people Israel. And that's certainly true, but if we leave it there this evening, we won't have done justice to this biblical text. You see, as we followed the the narrative speaking about the building of the temple and its furnishings, we skipped a wee bit uh, at the start of chapter 7, and it puts everything else in a considerably different light. Chapter 6 tells of the building of the temple, and you'd expect chapter 7 then to to continue the story of the the, the temple furnishings, but it doesn't. The description of the temple furnishings is is delayed until chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, We find ourselves instead reading about a royal palace complex being built. Now, it's important that we're willing to think as we read these biblical narratives. Why does the author delay the account of the completion of the temple? Did they simply want to get all the building work out of the road before uh, coming to deal with the furnishings? Well, well, maybe. Did they want to demonstrate the, the greater importance of the sacred temple and deal with it? Uh, but hide this, this story of the building of the palace, the secular palace in the middle of the account? Is that why they, they did this? Well, maybe. Or have they very deliberately put the narrative in this order to show us Solomon's compromised priorities at this point? I'm inclined to think it's the latter here. Look back to the last verse of chapter 6. We're told there that it was the eleventh year in the month of Bull, sorry, the eleventh year in the month of Bull, the eighth month, that the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. Solomon had taken seven years building it. Seven years. It's a big, big deal. And look at the next verse. 
opening verse of chapter 7. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to build his palace. Solomon's given almost twice as much time to building his own home as he is to building the temple of the Lord. Now, the sense that there's something not quite right here, it's not, this isn't a one-off in these verses. It's played out in the whole narrative. If we have another more detailed look at the architect's plans, we see this played out. Flick back to chapter 6, verse 2. We're told there that the temple is 60 cubits long and 20 cubits wide. This is a dream passage for somebody like me, a mathematician. It's, a hundred, it's 1,200 square cubits, the ground floor space of the temple. Flick over to chapter 7, verse 2. Solomon's temple, the grandly named palace of the forest of Lebanon, 100 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 5,000 square feet, over four times the size of the temple of the Lord. Are the alarm bells ringing for you? Not for the first time in 1 Kings, we see that Solomon has a divided heart. He does not love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. In chapter 3, it was a different issue. We learned that he was happy to take Pharaoh's daughter, a, a pagan the arch enemy of Israel, historically, take her into his home and into his bed. Here in chapter 7, we see that he's happy to build a palace that makes the temple of God look like a Wendy house. He's happy to live in that kind of luxury. Folks, Solomon loves God to a point. I don't deny that. I think Solomon loves God, or he thinks he does. but he loves women and luxurious living in a way that divides his heart. Turn back with me now to chapter 6, verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you're building, if you follow my decrees and carry out my regulations and keep all my commands and obey them, I'll fulfill through you the promise I gave to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. If. With that promise ringing in our ears and looking now at this life that Solomon's living, this luxuriating, womanizing Solomon, we're wondering what's going to happen. God sent his presence into that temple. How long? How long will it remain? There's a sense of impending doom in this biblical account as we read it with the hard parts left in. Folks, I've grappled with this passage this week as I've come to to preach it for you. And I've been reminded of the the complexity of God's dealings with his people. It's not simply a case of God being present with people while they're good and God not being present when they're, they're bad. 
Solomon here is living a very, very compromised life, and yet God chooses to, to wonderfully send his presence into that temple that Solomon's built. Why? Well, it's as I said earlier, because God reserves the right to act in his grace despite our sinfulness and to send blessings on us when we least deserve it. It's an exercise of sovereign grace. But I don't want to finish there this evening. I want to come back to the question we asked at the start. How do we host the presence of God? Is it enough to say after reading a passage like this, well, it doesn't matter how we live? Because sinful Solomon, womanizing Solomon, luxuriating Solomon knew the presence of God in his temple. We can do what we like and presume on God's presence. I don't think so. I've tried to, to bring this stuff together and come up with what, what makes sense to me, and I offer it to you as my conclusion this evening. I believe that the promises that God made to Solomon in chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, that promise is universal in its application. Wherever God's people make it a priority to please him and obey him, they can expect his presence among them. I've come to the conclusion that it's okay to believe that, that God will not absent himself from a community of his people who are dedicated to him. I think the problem arises when we read the situation backwards. When we look at a community and it looks as though God's blessing is on that community, and we put two and two together and get 46 and say, that must be a righteous, godly community. Everything is well in that place. There is no idolatry. There is no dividedness of heart. That's a healthy, godly community. Folks, it seems to me that it's very possible that God's blessing may rest on a place that was obedient in the past, but is, is sliding away. It may be that God's blessing is still on a place that looks okay on the surface, but behind the scenes is full of all sorts of compromise and, and double standards. In His grace, God's still there, but for how long? Folks, I want to close this evening by applying all of this to our small community here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. I tremble as I say it, but I say it anyway. I believe that God has been blessing us with his presence in recent times. I've had people share their sense of that with me. I, I know I've experienced it. And I count that a great privilege to be part of a community like this. But I don't ever want to imagine that that's anything to do with us. That it's because our worship is great or our preaching sound or there's something just right about this church. I want to pay attention to what God's Word teaches. And I want to recognize God's grace in all of these things. In the end, I want to do what Solomon hasn't managed to do. 
But what he urges his people to do at the end of chapter 8, turn to chapter 8, verse, I think it's 61. In the irony of all ironies, Solomon stands before his people with all this compromise in his own life, and he says, but your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees to obey his commands. Folks, I want to offer God a wholehearted obedience that makes God feel at home in the place where I am. Maybe that's a a simplistic conclusion I've come to, that God either feels at home among us or he doesn't. That he's willing to send his spirit on a community that welcomes him in heart and that he'll absent himself from one that doesn't. Is that too simple a conclusion to draw? A wholehearted obedience to God. I don't want to be content with anything less than obeying God with the whole of my heart, but knowing his full presence in my life and in the life of this community. God, give us the grace to to have hearts only for him, undivided, and to know the blessing of his presence for as long as we live. Let's pray. Father God, we, we get so sidetracked and so caught up when we think about our church life together. We think we need to have this particular thing or that particular thing or this way of doing things or, or that method. Lord, clear our vision this evening. Show us that you long to be with us but that you won't force yourself upon us. Remind us that so long as our hearts cry out for you, so long as they turn from from worshiping all other things, then you will be here. If we keep our hearts pure for you, you will live among us to bless us and make us strong. Lord, give us, each one of us, this undivided heart, we pray. And let us know the joy of living with your blessing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.